Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. When I was a kid, I used to have Olympic dreams. I was a hurdler and a distance runner in high school, and I was fast for my area of rural Massachusetts. And I thought that I could make it to the Olympic Games. I realized quickly that was not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm always so uh, fascinated and frankly inspired by people who continue to aim for the Olympics and aim for international competition. And that's why I wanted to talk to John Olbreis for a while. He's a rower who, with Olympic dreams uh, and aspirations. He is really good at what he does. He's better than I ever was. When um, his rowing is better than I ever was in the track and field. He competed for the Coast Guard Academy, and he, despite graduating years ago, he continues to row and in the D.C. area, uh, working with a local group to be the best rower he can be. He recently competed in, uh, tried to make it to the Olympics. It, it didn't work out for him. But it is absolutely, it really is inspiring to see athletes, to me, particularly out athletes, continue to push toward that dream. And you never know when the hard work is going to pay off. So I'm, I'm so really happy to talk to John this week about not just his rowing life, but his personal life, uh, working with the Coast Guard, being in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I just, I really appreciate him uh, chatting with me this week. One other thing, the technical issue, there are, there are a number of times when his, his audio kind of drops out. Apologize for that. You know, this is, this is not a perfect uh, science. There are things that, uh, issues pop up regularly when you're trying to record w with somebody who's thousands of miles away. So just, you know, apologize for that. Uh, and 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 I, I hope you get a lot out of listening to John. He's got a great story to tell, and and I'm just really thrilled that John Olbreis, uh is joining me this week for a conversation about aiming for the Olympic Games. John, thank you so much for joining me. I, I love that your Zoom handle is your last name with an exclamation point, like, Aubrey's! What, what, what's the exclamation point about? Um, so Zoom is uh, just the software that, like, we don't use it at all at work um, at Coast Guard headquarters or in the military. Um, and most of the function that I get out of it is at Potomac Boat Club, which is the club that I row for here in Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm both the elected captain of the boat club and the head of the regatta committee. So I put on a, a race in the fall every single year. And there are quite a number of teammates who just refer to me as my last name, um, especially because John is such a common name within the club. Um, so it, it got a, you know, people, people found it amusing the very first time I used it and I just never changed it, but it also, lines up with my very loud can be heard before he's seen personality so <laughs> i think it fits uh so the potomac boat club is that a, an lgbtq club or or not 
No, it is not. Um, so the one LGBTQ club in the city is DC Strokes Rowing Club, uh, but Potomac is just a plain Jane comes you are just for the sport of rowing um, boat club with just the mission of making people as fast as possible. Um, so that was really the initial attractor to going there when when I moved to the city. Um, you know, being in the Coast Guard, I was previously stationed in Baltimore, got assignment got orders actually to come down to Coast Guard headquarters in DC and looked at the three, three clubs in the city, um, DC Strokes Rowing Club, Capital Rowing Club, which are both, both based out of the boathouse I actually grew up rowing in um, at Anacostia Community Boathouse and Potomac Boat Club, which coincidentally I grew up despising um, because the, despite the reputation the club has for producing fast athletes. Um, they also had a pretty bad reputation for people, I guess, having like a sense of entitlement or just a bad attitude. Um, but it was like, you know, even rowing for Baltimore Rowing Club, which was about 40 miles away to the north, um, that that opinion of PBC persisted. So it was like a big, big deal to myself when I said, well, I want to go faster. So I guess I'll go to Potomac because that's where I need to go if I want to get faster. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find a lot of really wonderful people there. Um, so it it's a great community. I do have a lot of friends who are on DC Strokes Rowing Club, though. Um, and, you know, pre-pandemic times, I would go to their novice fundraiser at Nelly's Sports Bar um, where they'd set up two ergs and they'd have erging competitions in the middle of the bar, which was kind of a kind of an interesting setup because it's got like the tacky bar floor and people are wandering around in their rowing uniforms and 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 erging in the middle of people drinking like vodka sodas <laughs> it was fun though um they're a lot they're a really fun team they put on a really great uh regatta every single spring um that is my favorite regatta out of the entire racing calendar um just because it's so laid back and you get a bottle of wine if you win your race so what's not to love you know now, did they ask you, you know, why don't you come, you know, race with us? You know, there's, there's come, come be with your family. Yeah, actually, uh, um, Rachel Friedman, a friend of mine, um, she was, I think, in charge of the competitive program at DC Strokes at the time. Um, and I was telling her, you know, I'm looking at the program, but I really enjoy sculling and I want to continue to advance in my sculling and, you know, grow and develop as an athlete in that discipline. Um, but they, as a club, at least at the time, didn't have a sculling program um, and they had a sculling shell available and somebody who could maybe race with me, um, but the guarantee wasn't really there. So it um, I politely declined the invitation to row with them, um, went over to Potomac instead for that. Traitor! <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting what you said about your perceptions of Potomac, because I think this, you know, this, perva this pervades sports where we end up kind of vilifying in our own heads and, and on our own teams, other teams. And, um, and, and like, in, you see in sports all the time, you know, uh, the, somebody who plays for the 
New England Patriots will, you know, talk trash and what, you know, what a horrible program the Kansas City Chiefs are. And then the next year he's playing for the Kansas City Chiefs. And so, all right, well, <laughs> I guess we'll ignore all those issues and, and just, uh, you know, move forward. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, these ideas of entitlement and assholes here, it's once you get to know people, they're just people. And yeah, maybe somebody has a bad attitude, but I, you know, I, 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 I struggle to paint entire teams with, with broad brushes like that. Yeah. It's especially in the Roman community because it's so small, it's easy to get caught up in the, the fervor of, of just painting a whole group of people, like a whole team as, as this thing, um, when in fact, you know, having rode for a handful of clubs, like it's all kind of what you make it. And because it's such a small community too, it's actually really easy to make a very positive impact on like the clubs that you're rowing for and the people in the community around you. You just have to, you know, give a shit, put in a little bit of effort to try and change things. And it changes like reasonably easy. When you were rowing with the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, did anybody know that you were LGBTQ or you were gay? Um, not until my senior year, no. Was that entirely um, because of don't ask, don't tell, or was it because you were just, you know, you were afraid to tell them as people? So, it was entirely because of don't ask, don't tell. Um, I had a, so I did have friends at the academy who in my junior year knew that I were gay, knew that I was gay, um, but they were also um, fellow, you know, queer folks who were at the school who were kind of running in the same gay underground that we just kind of created. Um, but none of my teammates knew um, and it was very difficult for me to figure out, you know, aside from my, my queer allies, who I could tell and feel safe telling without running the risk of that being the wrong person. And all of a sudden I'm being thrown out because of my identity. There's a queer underground at the academy or, or, or well, I mean, there probably, there isn't anymore, I guess, because don't ask, don't tell, it's gone. How do you navigate your way to that? underground community? Um, so it didn't exist actually, uh, as far as I know, until I showed up. Um, my classmate, Melissa McCafferty, um, who is an amazing woman, um, very, very strong-willed, uh, kind of loud, unabashed lesbian um, without, you know, saying she was a lesbian, just started doing small signals here and there um, through things like having a national, observing the National Day of Silence for the first time at the Academy um, my freshman year. And she, there was a, like an open invitation that was sent out through email to the entire Corps of Cadets and people who wanted to join could um, go get little placards and we were just gonna be silent at lunch and that was gonna be it. Uh, but that would be our observance. And then somebody at the end of the lunch would read why we were observing that. And um, it caused, caused a bit of a commotion that year and the successive years that it was held. Um, but it wasn't until she and I 
uh, and a couple other people were visiting a friend of hers at the time um, up in Boston that she came out to me and then I came out to her. And then uh, we had this small cohort of people who all knew like, you know, we're all, we're all here undercover trying to do the best that we can to graduate. You know, we're not, we're not trying to undermine the academy or whatever evil nefarious thing the gay agenda was being claimed it was at the time. Um, we're just, you know, trying to serve our country and graduate from this school and get decent grades and kind of worry about the same things everybody else was worrying about um, without having to have the additional fear of getting thrown out. Um, but it, it was really nice to, to have that when we were cadets, once we actually found out who each other was, um, because then it provided a little bit of fellowship and a little bit of community that we didn't know existed. Um, and that's, you know, I feel like a lot of queer people can recognize the, the comfort that being around other queer people provides, just like, you know, any form of community. Um, so, you know, the, the risk of being kicked out of the academy still existed, even though this community existed, but at least you didn't have to navigate the whole thing seemingly by yourself on your own. Um, so that was, it was great that that started up and actually on her way out, Melissa laid the framework for um, another fellow queer cadet to carry forward um, to create the foundation of the first service academy um, LGBTQ affinity group. Um, so the first official recognized like diversity council of sorts for um, straight or uh, for queer people and straight allies, which was huge um, and really, really awesome. Don't Ask, Don't Tell had two parts. We focus on the don't tell part, which means you can't, you know, say I'm gay. Um, but the don't ask part, it sounds like she really took advantage of that. She she identified that I can I can have a moment of silence. I can say I support LGBTQ people as long as I don't say I'm lesbian. They can't ask me. And it seems like she really took advantage of that part in a really powerful way. She absolutely did. Um, and, you know, it's, it actually, since you framed it that way, um, lessons from that time are things that uh, even now, um, coming out of the previous administration, we have had to navigate in trying to celebrate all aspects of the, of the queer community. Um, we had a, a big rigmarole, um, my colleague in the office of naval engineering at headquarters and I put on a like a pride month event wherein we wanted to be able to talk about um, you know all aspects of the queer community not just the LGB bits um, and because the previous administration had this uh, they basically you know Trump tweeted about repealing um, the ability for trans service members to serve openly, um, we were actually not allowed to talk about trans service. Um, or I think even to go so far as like trans issues in the military. So 
my colleague Caleb and I decided that we would take another approach and we instead talked about, uh, you know, being the parent of a queer child. And since children don't, you know, come out of the womb and proclaim their identities, um, they go through life and they slowly figure it out, addressing the issue of, you know, you as a parent may have a queer child and what does that mean and how do you how do you receive them when they come out to you, if they come out to you, or, um, you know, what maybe if you're sitting in the audience and a lot of this sounds a little too close to home and it, it starts to resonate with you, what resources exist for you to be able to go out and talk to people? Um, specifically for us, it was within the, the DC area. Um, we had a bunch of nonprofits come in and speak about navigating parenthood for queer children, but um, we kind of figured out a way to go around the rules and provide resources to people who may want to lean on them or need to lean on them without necessarily ruffling the feathers of the administration, which said hard and fast, these are things that you can't talk about. Um, so, you know, without really thinking about it, Melissa definitely teed up um, a successful way of and a model for being able to address these issues that are, um, I don't want to say sensitive in the military to talk about, but I guess just, you know, prohibited topics. Um, since being in a military organization, there are things that you are and aren't allowed to talk about. And unfortunately, trans rights um, under the previous administration was one of those things. Well, I, I've heard from a lot of service members that there's there are more out people and have been for decades than you would realize um, that 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 certainly a lot of people fell victim to don't, don't ask, don't tell. But there was a lot more, you know, quote unquote, underground queer community than 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 like I said, than, than we might realize. But at the same time, you know, it's not like the, the switch just gets turned on. You don't just, you know. Oh, don't ask, don't tell gets repealed, and then everybody's welcoming. It, it is it is a process for a lot of people. And right. I imagine that even today, there are still lingering feelings and attitudes about LGBTQ people. And certainly, I mean, trans people are so misunderstood that, I, that I'm sure trying to navigate that within, within the military uh, continues to be a struggle, for uh, 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 certainly at times. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's some of the things. So uh, Caleb is heavily involved with the governance of actually a service wide, um, basically LGBTQ uh, affinity group. I can't remember what they're called because affinity groups are specific to the academy. Um, but it is effectively a service-wide diversity council um, that exists to support queer service members. Um, and one of the things as you know, he and I were involved in the very, very early inception and then I stepped back because it, it looked like it was going to be way more work than I'd be able to handle, but he's stuck with it. Um, a lot of people started coming forward with stories of uh, perceived discrimination or overt discrimination. Um, and you know, there are a couple of instances before this group was started where people had told me stories about uh, discrimination that they'd experienced from people in their offices. And it was, you know, it was really hard to hear and pretty sad because it's, 
like they're they're out here doing the job, doing the best that they can, and in some cases, really, really applying themselves, um, all of these queer service members, and to have somebody within their command or around them turn around and, you know, crush their spirit for who they are and not the work that they're doing or like come down them, come down on them for really what I perceive as being, and I think most people would agree as being no good reason at all. Um, it's disheartening and it's difficult. And unfortunately it still exists, um, out in the service, you know, um, I've had the benefit of when it was finally repealed, don't ask, don't tell, um, while I was at my first unit on a coast guard cutter out of Charleston, South Carolina, um, I talked to people on my ship pretty openly about my identity and the challenges that I had of, you know, not just being gay in the coast guard, but also kind of openly being gay for the first time in my life in a brand new city where I was at home for three months and, you know, we were deployed for three months and it constantly cycled like that. So, you know, as, as I watched marriages fall apart in the middle of our deployments, trying to figure out like, how do I fall in love? Is it even possible to fall in love with somebody in that amount of time and sustain that relationship during deployments where all you have to talk to people is literally text only email? Um, so those people though, uh, I've had two instances since I left that ship have reached out to me and said, hey, uh, I just thought you'd be interested in knowing that uh, there were some instances where people were just bandying about homophobic slurs and I stepped in and I told them it wasn't okay and they needed to stop that uh, because there are queer service members all around them. I mean, we are literally everywhere and always have been. Um, so, you know, show some respect. They're all like, they could be the person who's right next to you who's rescuing you from a fire or something. And, you know, they're people too, and they're valid. And you need to actually appreciate the fact that um, they are not this other that's being demonized for some reason that causes you to think that they are lesser than. Um, so that, that continues to be the struggle, especially since there are some people who are, I think, slow to come around or, resistance to to you know really appreciating that idea that we're not out here with some nefarious gay agenda that's going to destroy democracy or something i don't i, I don't know where where they get those negative feelings from but um just to treat all of the their you know fellow service members as peers because we are you know, we're not less than in any particular way. Again, it's just these attitudes about gay people that have existed in, in our country for a long, long time. And then you add the military to it. And again, I, I understand that, that people go on a journey and, and, you know, when you really challenge them, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you afraid of? When you really start getting them thinking about it, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess John's not going to what, try to rape me in the shower? Like, I mean, what, what, what is, why does my actual fear? We've done, tried to do the same thing in sports. Like, what are you actually afraid of? You know, you're afraid of a, a gay man seeing you naked. Like, what is, who, why do you care? What is, what, you think he's gonna try something or, or somehow force himself on right. you? And it's gotten people to really start thinking, oh, I guess a gay guy seeing me naked actually doesn't do anything to me. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, that, that was a, a 
almost exactly a discussion that we had at the academy in the last year I was there. Um, that was in a period where the Obama administration had a year-long kind of review and analysis period before they would sign into law the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, and so one of our professors, uh, she had a lot of really provocative conversations with my fellow political science majors and I about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and what that means and what are your concerns. And there were you know, more than a few classmates of mine that spoke up um, who said, well, we're uncomfortable with sharing bathrooms with them because what if they look at us while we're showering? You know, that's inappropriate. And it's, it's like, I don't want that around me. I'm not comfortable with that. And, you know, it, it was all I could do to not just say, I don't understand why you care so much. None of us care. Like it's, we've already seen you naked. It's, it's not like we're not here already, but all of a sudden you're now thinking about it and that makes you uncomfortable for what reason? Like, I, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard for me to appreciate that perspective, especially since, you know, as part of that, like the queer population, I knew that there were way more of us than were actually in the underground um, at the time, but like we were all there, we were already being cadets. We'd been there for four years with these people. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to wrap my mind around, you know, what, where the phobia was coming from, um, if not just a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge and, you know, just not knowing that we're already there and we're all just normal people trying to get by and we don't care. We're worried about so many other things. Like we're not just going to stand there and ogle you if, if <laughs> the, the wandering eye is what you're worried about or, you know, assault, but. You should be more concerned yeah, if we're not looking at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> What you you talked about navig trying to navigate dating through all this and, and being um, deployed and 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 I'm curious how did you end up doing that and how did you end up meeting Dave? Um, so I spent a lot of time on Grinder, um, like m probably more than is healthy, but uh, I did date a couple of guys while I was down in Charleston, and that was. It didn't work out for a multitude of reasons. Um, you know, I think out of the four times I was back in home port, maybe I had started a romantic relationship with somebody like a new person each time, um, three times. There was one where I came back and like, just didn't try to start anything. Um, but the, no, it was actually all four times. Um, but they all fell apart in one way or another. Um, and so it was difficult, but also as soon as my ship deployed, if I wasn't dating anybody, it, it just wasn't a problem. Um, and I did try to date someone through a deployment and got all the way through. And then it fell apart after I had come back from patrol because of some reason or another, um, really wasn't clear to me, but it just seemed overwhelmingly challenging. Um, but I did have the benefit of while I was stationed in Charleston, um, 
another fine lesbian was also stationed um, in the same home port who had been in New London. She's not an academy grad, um, but she was stationed on Eagle, uh, a young enlisted lady who she and I both knew each other through Melissa. Um, so when she was stationed in Charleston and she found the gay underground, knew I was there, she was like, oh, well, you should just come and hang out with all the gays. Um, of whom there were many across multiple military branches. So we just kind of existed like in the same group and we got to be really good friends, uh, me and Amy. And so she, you know, she through all of the, like the tumult of being in this new place, coming out like kind of broadly and officially for the first time in my life and trying to navigate what the hell the gay community even was um, especially in a super small Southern town like Charleston, um, it was really, really nice to have somebody like Amy who, um, you know, had been out on her ship before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed and nobody cared because she did her job and she did a great job at it and she wasn't hurting anybody. So why would they care who she was? Um, so she was really able to help um, as a young, freshly commissioned officer in the Coast Guard um, and a baby gay um, helped me kind of start to figure out who it was that I was and how I should be doing basically like living my life, both in a professional and a personal sense. Um, I think otherwise beyond having her, um, it was really difficult to navigate having a, like a, any sort of a romantic relationship at that point. Um, I don't know if that's still a problem for like young gay officers in the Coast Guard or the military in general, but um, that was something I know that all of my classmates when we graduated struggled with figuring out quote unquote adult life, um, regardless of their sexualities. Like, how do I make friends? Yeah. How do I pay my bills, like all these basic things you don't worry about as a cadet are all of a sudden all of your problems and nobody's taking care of it but you. Um, but the, it was, you know, there were obviously small differences in what the issues were that you were dealing with. Mine just happened to be figuring out my sexuality and figuring out how I fit in Charleston and, um, and its small gay community. And how did you end up meeting your current boyfriend, Dave? Oh, right. Um, so we also met on Grindr. Um, but one thing that struck me when I inevitably went over to his place for late night activities, um, there's usually this pomp and circumstance in hookup culture of like people getting ready and you go over and you don't look like a slob. And it's this very like, there's a lot of peacocking that goes on. Um, he invited me in but told me that he wanted to finish doing the dishes and fold his laundry and he was just kind of hanging out in pjs and like very clearly comfortable with who he was and what he was doing and the fact that i was there for um something other than chores was <laughs> was not something that he was like interested in putting before his responsibilities um even if those are just responsibilities to himself so that really stood out to me. Um, and he, you know, that's, that is one of the, the things that I find most wonderful about him is he's so, um, so focused and able to 
think about things he needs to do and then just commits to doing them, um, which for me is almost a counter to how I can be. Like I do love a plan. Plans just absolutely fuck my shit up, but executing that plan in a calm, collected, straightforward manner is sometimes very difficult for me because I'll see like the next new shiny thing that's uh, an option to change that plan and maybe run with it. And Dave is very much a, uh, we had a plan, this is the plan, we should execute the plan until there's something maybe more reasonable to do and then we'll do that. Or weighing all the options in advance before doing something. Um, mine is very much, my ability to manage my life is very much a product of my my military profession in that the Coast Guard is a very small, agile, fast moving organization. And so you come up with a plan, hope it's 100%, try and get as much information as you can in a short amount of time and then just do it. Um, but Dave's perspective, both early in the relationship um, and you know, continuing to this day, three, three years in, um, and his, his slower, more analytical way of thinking about things is, you know, it helps make me a much better person is what, and that's ultimately what you want in a relationship, right? That, what you're saying reminds me of, of my relationship. When I, when I met my husband, he was dating somebody else and I literally fell in love with my husband the moment I saw him. It was, it, it was just that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I made a very conscious decision. We were on, we were on vacation uh, separately with different friends in Provincetown. And I made a decision that night. He has a boyfriend. I want to be with him forever. I'm not having sex with him until his relationship is over. And, you know, that's a lot of people don't go that route. And he was with his boyfriend for another two years. <laughs> and we would see each other and, you know, we would hang out and listen to music. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not having sex with you. And eventually he broke up with his boyfriend. And that was 18 years ago. We've been together ever since. And, and you're... Uh, this, your story reminds me of that because it's like, oh, there's, yes, there's, there's this really shiny thing that I could, I could, um, uh, that I, that I could get distracted by right now, but there's a, there's a bigger picture here. At least there was for me. Yeah. Are you two live together? Yeah. Dave and I, uh, we do actually, he moved in. Um, so we had basically been spending almost every day together in general. He lived in Northwest, I lived down in Southeast. Um, and we would alternate or plan out which nights we were spending at which person's place, um, which was difficult. You know, it's running all the way across the city, which makes it sound like it's, you know, an hour long drive, but it, it's like 20 to 30 minutes by Metro or car. Um, and then I'd wake up in the morning from his place and have to go to crew, um, which was a little bit of a longer drive from his place. So there were added stressors of the whole logistics of everything. But um, when the pandemic started and I came back from uh, last year's canceled Olympic trials, um, he had two roommates and he said, you know, I might as well just be here because 
it doesn't make any sense to go back and forth. And as a teacher, he was remote teaching 100% of the time anyway. So uh, he was here for a while. And then we had a discussion about, you know, are we going to live together? And if so, when and how's that going to look? And we just arrived on the decision of him moving his stuff into the apartment and I'll get rid of some of the stuff I had. Um, and so that happened maybe six months ago, seven months ago. But, you know, effectively we we had been living together even though we were splitting time at each other's places well before that. We'd been spending pretty much every day together. So it just made sense, you know. You mentioned the Olympic trials. So were you were you at the trials last year when they got canceled? Yes. <laughs> what was that experience like? Oh man, um, it was it was a lot. Um, the lead up to it, it was hard to mentally navigate uh, because obviously there were. I think it was late February, early March. There started to be stories about. Um, about the pandemic coming out and I, like Americans really didn't understand what that meant. I think most of the world really didn't understand what that meant. And we saw what was happen happening with Italy, but I think the United States also thought, well, it's not really here yet. So we don't have to worry too much about it. Um, so I ended up traveling down to Florida for a two week long trip, uh, wherein I'd spend a week before trials kind of acclimating to the like climate in Florida, um, getting used to the equipment I was going to be renting and then another week racing. And most people who were racing at trials had either left wherever they were training to come to Florida or it had already arrived when U.S. rowing made the decision, um, mostly prompted by um, the uh, USOPC to cancel all trials events because we shouldn't be naming national teams in the middle of a like very scary pandemic. Um, so it was pretty chaotic, especially because the um, they canceled the Friday before the regatta. I think on Monday they canceled any hope of having like delaying the regatta. Um, they just fully canceled the event. Um, and then by that Wednesday, I think World Rowing um, canceled the qualifier regatta that most people would have had to go to to qualify our boat classes for the Olympics. Um, and then it wasn't, you know, it was maybe a couple of weeks after that, or even less than a week that uh, the Olympic organizers delayed Tokyo by a year. So it was, there was a lot of just flying by the seat of our pants, trying to figure out what was going on, um, especially for people who were already on the national team from 2019, trying to figure out what that means to their team membership and what that would mean for, um, you know, training for the next year. Because that's one thing that like a lot of people don't consider is athletes who want to participate in the Olympics have uh, meso training cycles that are hopefully if they're planned right four years long. So they line up with the Olympics. Um, so you, you slowly build all of the, the work that you're doing through that quadrennial to then peak at 
the event that you're training for, which is the Olympics regatta. Um, with a lot of other peaks, obviously, in between if you're going to Worlds or if you're racing at Nationals or something like that. But um, it was really hard for people to navigate the concept of having to add a fifth year to a year where they were already kind of planning on peaking, which was uh, the case across a lot of sports and a lot of news articles that were written about the delaying of the Tokyo Games. Um, because, you know, having to perform that high level um, for most people, short explosive work um, for another year or taper back and then reintroduce it in another year was, it's a lot, it's a lot to manage and a lot for the central nervous system, like for the body. Um, so within the sport, it was interesting because quite a number of people um, just, just retired um, since yeah. they didn't want to have to go through that for another year and they were planning on retiring this year anyway. Um, Robbie Manson, the rower in New Zealand, who uh, has been Olympics, and yeah, he just uh, he just said, "I'm done," and it's unfortunate that 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 happens to people. Um, are you done? Yeah. Oh no, sorry. Um, I thought you meant with the <laughs> the opinion about the cancellation. No, I'm I'm far from done. I love the sport way too much to just be done after um, this Olympic trials. Um, I've been doing it for what? 15 years, 16 years, something like that. Um, and it, you know, I've got a member of my club who's over 80 years old and still competing on the water and having fun. And I will be like him someday. Um, just maybe not planning on going to Olympic trials or national team trials anytime in the new, like when I'm that age. But uh, my plan is to race trials again next year and, you know, give Olympic trials a shot again for Paris and see what happens. Paris is a great place to visit. So you, that would be pretty amazing. Uh, John, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know I, I kept you for, for longer than I promised, but uh, I, I just appreciate you and, and just keep us updated on, on everything that you're, that you're doing. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm glad we were able to set this up and really enjoyed talking with you. You can find John Olbrys on Twitter and Instagram. If you type in John, J-O-H-N, Olbrys is O-L-B-R-Y-S. He's got a couple different handles there, but if you type in that name, it's a pretty unique name. So chances are, if you type that in, you're going to find John. I really appreciate you listening and really appreciate John taking the time to talk to me about life in the military and being a gay athlete. Looking forward next week to, well, <laughs> there, there are a couple different directions. I'm not sure who's going to be our guest next week. Um, there is something really big and amazing coming uh, for this podcast in the next couple of weeks. I don't know if it's going to be next week or the week after, but do come back next week. Listen to all the Outsports podcasts. Everybody does an amazing job, I think. Uh, just, you know, Don and Carly, in particular, the Transporter Room, are talking about a lot of trans topics in sports today. It, obviously, it's it's a hot topic right now, and I really appreciate all they do, um, and Alex and Ken and Brian and and uh, and and the Game Day T. Like ev everybody's doing such a good job. I really love listening to every episode, and I'm really proud of all the stuff that we're doing here at Outsports. So, anyhow, come back next week, and and between now and then, listen to all those amazing other podcasts, and we will talk to you then. <laughs>